thanks, Graham. Um, I see you've got John Allen this evening. Always a privilege to warm up for John Allen. Uh, if you don't normally come out of an evening, then um, I'd encourage you to, to come out and listen, listen to John. Always worth listening to. We're going to read from God's Word, and we're going to read from uh, Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to read from uh, chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, this is a series that you've been going through, I think, for, um, for some time now. I think I spoke on Matthew when I came here last time. So uh, Matthew chapter 15, and we're going to read uh, the first uh, 20 verses. And it says this, Then some Pharisees, <clears throat> teachers of the law, came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus replied, Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is now devoted to God, he is to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were really offended when they heard this? And he replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both of them will fall into a pit. Peter explained, Peter said, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. These are what makes a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. Let's just pray briefly before we look at God's word together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for bringing us here today. We don't want this to be uh, the same old, same old. We want you to teach us this morning. We want you to enlighten us this morning. We want to take a word of comfort today, but Lord, would you also challenge? Uh, we know that your word uh, does both and is capable of doing both. So we pray that our hearts this morning may be receptive to what your word has to teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. Um, seems to me, uh, certainly in church work, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, associate minister of a Baptist church, if you don't know, a Baptist church uh, in Exeter, uh, that, that increasingly you have to go on an increasing amount of courses. 
Do you find that? I don't know whether you find that. You'll find that, you know, in secular work as well. There just seems to be one course after the next that you have to uh, go on these days to meet requirements and, and, and all the rest of it. Uh, so yesterday we were on a, a first aid course. Anybody here done a first aid course? Fascinating, aren't they? <laughs> I, haven't used, I haven't had to use uh, first aid for years and years and years and years and years. I got home yesterday, cut my finger. <laughs> Quite badly, I should say. Thank you. <laughs> Cut my finger, and then I burnt my thumb. I know, it's terrible, isn't it? All after doing a first aid course. So, anyway, I knew exactly what to do with myself. Um, who's been on a hygiene course? Well, yeah, a few of you have been on a hygiene course. I've been on a hygiene course as well. And, of course, on a hygiene course, they, they tell you, don't they, how to wash your hands, how to do it properly, make sure you do it right in between the nails and all the rest of it. And, and, and that kind of seems, doesn't it, what's going on today in the sense that the Pharisees, the religious teachers, had come to Jesus and it seems that they were teaching Jesus and teaching his disciples a lesson in food hygiene. How to wash your hands or that you should wash your hands. Uh, that's what it seems like on the surface. But there is a lot more going on here. There is a lot more going on. And that's what we're going to be looking at uh, today for the next few minutes, not too much longer. We're probably only going to be looking at the first half of this passage. Uh, it's quite a long passage. There's an awful lot in it, so we're only going to be looking really at the first uh, nine verses or so, something like that. But, you know, as you read the Gospels, I trust you see, you know, put, put very, very generally, very succinctly, that the intention of the Gospel writers is to show us who Jesus really is. That's basically why they wrote their Gospels, to show us who Jesus really is. That Jesus is not just a good man or a teacher, as uh, Mahatma Gandhi said. Uh, that he's not just uh, a prophet, as Muslims believe him to be, but that he is God himself. That he is the Son of God. And, and to do that, the Gospel writers continually point us to the power and to the authority that Jesus had and displayed. His authority over Nature, for example, as he goes out onto the lake and calms the storm with just a word. His authority over sickness, over people who were, who were sick with all sorts of diseases, who came to him to be healed. His authority over demons, uh, that he was able to command to leave people at just uh, a word. His authority to be able to forgive sins. And, of course, ultimately his power and his authority over death as he raises Lazarus back to life again, as he raises Jairus' daughter back to life. And, of course, ultimately, he himself, after three days of being in the tomb, uh, rises from the dead with such victory. Continually, through the Gospels, particularly Mark's Gospel, but through the other Gospels as well, we see Jesus' power displayed time and time again. And in Mark's Gospel, that the crowds who are listening to Jesus latch onto this authority and onto this power straight away, it seems. Mark chapter 1, verse 22, it says the people were amazed. It says they were utterly amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, unlike, it says, the teachers of the law. Unlike the teachers of the law. See, in comparison to what the crowds were used to as they went into the synagogue and they heard the teachers of the law, this, coming from Jesus, was an altogether, completely different kind of power and different kind of authority. And then in Matthew chapter 10, which you would have looked at some weeks or months ago, whenever that was, 
Jesus does something amazing as he sends out his disciples on what was essentially a mission trip. He sends them out and, and, and in equipping them for that mission, he gives them a share of his power and a share of his authority. And it's with this authority that we see an extraordinary transition take place in the lives of the disciples as they turn from being simply spectators in the work of the gospel to participators in the work of the gospel. And today, like the disciples, God is calling you and he's calling me to move, if we haven't already done so, to move from being spectators in the work of the gospel to participators. And so here's a question this morning, and there'll be several, I guess, as we go on. Are you a spectator this morning or are you a participator? Are you a spectator or are you a participator? Because if we're going to be genuine participators in the work of the gospel, getting involved with what God wants us to do, getting on with the work he's given us to do, it's vital that you and I are equipped to do that, that you and I have the resources to do that, and that we are equipped with the authority and with the power of the Lord Jesus and with his word and with the power and with the authority of his Holy Spirit, which he promises to give us when we give our lives to him and we trust in him as our saviour. And what happens in today's passage is that we're going to look at the consequences and the dangers of what happens when we go it alone, when we try and do this thing in participating in the gospel alone, the consequences and the dangers of what is a self-reliant religion. And so as we, we, at the beginning of chapter 15, we come across once more these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, these very religious men. So we go through the gospels, again, particularly Mark's gospel, divides the people into three groups. He talks about the disciples, he talks about the crowds, and he talks about the opposition, or the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. That's how Mark splits them up into three groups. And here we have the opposition, the Pharisees. They come up from Jerusalem on this, on this, on this fact-finding trip to gather evidence against Jesus, whom they had already decided was, was, uh, was a really dodgy guy and really had to be done away with. But during this confrontation in Matthew chapter 15, and the opposition had already had a few confrontations with Jesus. Jesus shows us what the Pharisees and what the teachers of the law are really like. They come to expose Jesus for the troublemaker that he was, but actually Jesus ends up exposing them for the hypocrites that they were. Actually, what Jesus does here is give us this kind of x-ray of the Pharisees. He allows us to kind of look inside the Pharisees. He opens them up for all of us to see, not literally, figuratively, and he shows us what, what they are really like on the inside. And it's not a pleasant sight. It's not a pleasant sight. And we shouldn't be surprised, particularly after Jesus' description of them during the week leading up to his crucifixion, Matthew 23, which we'll come on to eventually. Matthew 23, verse 27 says, Woe to you! You know, Jesus never held back his words. He was always graceful, but he never held back his words. He always spoke the truth. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. Tombs in those days, they used, to, they used to paint beautifully to make them look lovely and clean and lavish from the outside. He said, you are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you are full of what? You are full of dead man's bones. He said, you are full of everything unclean. 
And as Jesus tells us, and this is kind of really the only time we're going to refer to the latter half of the passage, Jesus tells us later on, rottenness on the inside usually makes its way to the surface. What comes out of a man or a woman's mouth is a good indication of what is going on on the inside. We can make a good job sometimes of hiding it, but at one point or another it usually comes out. Now, to the disciples and to the crowds around, Jesus exposing the Pharisees would have been shocking and would have been incredibly surprising. That's what the, Pharisees, what the, what the disciples say when they come to Jesus in verse 12. Oh, you know, steady. Steady, Jesus. Just, you know, don't you know that actually when you said those words to them and called them hypocrites, you, you, you offended them? Because after all, these were the religious leaders of, of Israel. These were men who did all they could to keep themselves undefiled, who did all they could to keep themselves clean. And yet here was Jesus telling them they were like rotten corpses. These were the men who'd been uh, entrusted to teach the people uh, to uphold and to guard the word of God and his law. These were the men who the people believed had the backing and had the authority of God himself. The people believed that they had the power of God working in them. And that's certainly what they claimed uh, of themselves. But when these men come up against Jesus, when these men come up against the light of the world, the true authority, the very word of God, they can be seen for who they really are. So the parallel passage to Matthew chapter 15 um, in Mark's gospel, because these are the synoptic gospels we're talking about, Matthew, Mark and Luke, very similar gospels, is Mark chapter 7. That's the parallel passage to Matthew chapter 15. So we're going to be looking a little bit also and, and, and just cross-referencing between Mark 7 and Matthew 15. It may be an idea just, if you want to, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15 and then just to be able to flick over to Mark 7 as well. Because Jesus details for us here how the Pharisees got into such a state. How did they get into such a state? How did they get to this point of being rotten corpses? Well, firstly, in Mark chapter 7, verse 8, Jesus tells the Pharisees that they had let go of the commands of God. That they had let go of the commands of God. This was the first step on this very slippery slope. You see, the Pharisees hadn't been watchful. You'd have expected them to be, but they hadn't been watchful. They hadn't been diligent. They had allowed God's commands to just simply slip away from them. And that's the ploy of the devil. It's the ploy of Satan. He is continually seeking ways to distract us, to take our attention, to take our eye off the ball. Slowly but surely is looking to take the truth of God's word away from us. And one by one, we let them go. And we see that all around us, don't we, today? One by one, God's commands are being challenged. Is this really the truth? And one by one, they seem to be slipping away from us. Until then we come to the point in Mark chapter 7 verse 9 where Jesus says we have set aside the commands of God altogether. See folks, if we allow the commands of God to slip out of our hands, eventually we are going to set them aside altogether, another part of God's word abandoned, another part of God's word forgotten, slipping out of our hands, abandoning them altogether. And then in Mark chapter 7, verse 13, and then also in Matthew chapter 15, verse 6, Jesus tells us here, and this is so important, this is so important to see this, this, this sequence of events. He tells us the tragic consequences of first letting go to the commands of God and then setting them aside. Chapter 15, verse 6, thus says Jesus, you nullify, 
you nullify the word of God in your lives. In other words, by letting go and setting aside and replacing God's commands with our own practices, the power and the authority of God's word in our lives to work and to act has gone. It's been nullified. As Jesus makes clear in his whitewashed tomb analogy, the religious leaders of Israel were spiritually rotten. Why? Because the power of God's word was no longer working in their lives. And so they become rotten on the inside. Folks, it is a sobering thing, isn't it? It is a sobering thought that people may look spiritually good and right from the outside, but on the inside they can be spiritually dead and rotten because God's word has been nullified in their lives. What a tragic situation that is. Let's just take a closer look at the Pharisees and the religious teachers as Jesus shows us in more detail how all of that had come about. Let's see where the rot had set in. Now it's important to see that the opposition or the Pharisees, the religious teachers, loved, they loved their traditions. They loved their traditions. Mark chapter 7 verse 3 tells us that they held on to their Uh, to the traditions of the elders. Mark chapter 7, verse 4, tells us that they observe many other traditions. Now, just the mention of the word tradition in church is enough to stir up all sorts of emotions in us, isn't it? We we do like the way that we've always done things, don't we? (laughs) We like our traditions. Some of you, you know, may not be worried about that, but, you know, I know that's the case for me. I know in our church, our communion service was always at the end of the service. We always had it at the end. One day it was suggested that we had it at the beginning of the service. (gasps) Wow. I mean, the problems that we had trying to introduce that. But really just moving it from one end of the service to the other. But we like things as they are, don't we? We like our traditions. And don't say no, because we all do at some point or another. But what is meant by traditions in the context of this passage. So it's important to understand here that the traditions referred to here were not part of the written law that God had given to Moses, part of the written law that God had given to the children of Israel. You see, the tradition of the elders, which is what Mark talks about in chapter 7, verse 3, and Matthew 15, verse 3, refers to what we call the Jewish oral tradition. These are things that have been added to the law over the centuries by the religious leaders. Now, originally, the idea for this, the idea about these traditions and to add them was to help the people to understand the law and to help them apply it practically. But as we come down through the ages and we arrive at the time of Jesus, far from the traditions helping the people to apply God's law, they become this huge burden upon the people. This vast list of do's and don'ts, this endless cycle of religious rituals. And even since the time of Jesus, that list of traditions has been added to. Can we have that picture up there, Kevin? There is an Orthodox Jew on an aeroplane in a plastic bag. You think, what on earth is a guy doing on an aeroplane in a plastic bag? Well, it's a little difficult to work out exactly why he's doing that, but it's got to do with being clean and trying to keep himself clean. This particular sect of Orthodox Jews can't go anywhere near a crematorium for fear of breathing in the fumes of those bodies that are being burned. Now, of course, on the ground you can avoid a crematorium, but in the air you may fly over one. And so 
These guys place themselves in plastic bags on planes to make sure they possibly can't be defiled by crematorium fumes. Now, you know, I know, I know, but this is where it's come to. This is where it is today with the traditions that have been added down through the years. This endless list of do's and don'ts. Right, you can take that picture down now, otherwise it'll distract. And, and, and what is apparent here in today's passage is that the traditions of the elders had in fact become more important. They'd become more important to the Pharisees than the word of God. Because Jesus says in chapter 15, verse 3, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your traditions? This is what it says in the Jewish Talmud, uh, which was written between the 2nd and the 5th centuries AD. This is what it says. It is a greater offence to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict scripture itself. So that's what it says in the Jewish Talmud. It is a greater offence to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict scripture itself. That's where the traditions of the Jews have brought them to. So the obvious application, folks, here, and it is an obvious application, I know, but it's one that we need to apply, is that do we place our traditions above the word of God? Are they that important to us? Of course, tradition does have a part to play in our lives, doesn't it? Tradition does have a part to play in the church. But they should never be seen as more important than the word and the commands and the authority of God. What traditions are we clinging onto that hinder the work of the gospel in our lives and in this church? But it's not just traditions. When we allow anything in our lives to become more important to us than the word of God and obeying the word of God, the the inevitable consequence is, as Jesus says, that God's word is nullified, that God's word loses its power in our lives by our traditions, by our career, by our habits, by our addictions, by our desire for material gain, the power of God's word to work in us and through us and in us and through us and through the church is lost. When we put these things above the word of God. So why did the Pharisees love following their traditions? Why had their traditions become more important to them than the commands and the word of God? Well, well, here's the reason. It gave them a confidence. It gave them a confidence and a feeling of security. What do I mean by that? Well, the thing that the Pharisees pulled Jesus up on, as we saw at the beginning, revolves around ceremonial washing. So the Jews said that before you ate a meal, you should wash your hands. Now, that's not a bad thing, okay? Young people, you're here today, that's great. Always wash your hands before a meal is a good thing to do. There's nothing wrong with that. But Mark tells us that the Jewish, that the, that the teachers of the law said that we should particularly, or you should particularly wash your hands after coming back from the marketplace. That's when you need to wash your hands specifically after coming back from the marketplace. Why did you have to do that? Because it was in the marketplace where the Jews would come into contact with the Gentiles. Or worse still, uh, the sinners and the tax collectors. Or worse still, even the Samaritans. The people that the Jews could have nothing to do with. And, and, and it was having contact with these people, these unclean people, that made the Jew unclean. And so the need for this ceremonial washing. Actually, such was the sensitivity among Jews over coming into contact with Gentiles or with sinners that even the shadow of a Gentile passing across the Jew was enough to make them unclean. 
Now, originally, this tradition was given to remind the Jews that they were God's chosen people. They were God's special people, set apart from the other nations to do his work. But over time, this washing had become this empty ritual, this outwardly uh, uh, washing uh, and observing this this washing ceremony. But inwardly, as Jesus shows us, they they were rotten and their hearts were just far from him. In fact, on the inside, they were no different from all of those around them anyway. Their religious rituals had made them proud and given them a confidence and a security. And that's why they liken themselves elsewhere in the Bible, in John's Gospel, to, to or, or like, like to do, they're God's special people. But actually, it was a false confidence and it was a false security. In fact, some Jews came to Jesus one day, as I said in John's Gospel, and they said to Jesus, the only father we have is God himself. Their religious practices had given them false confidence to believe that they were God's children, special and set apart. But what does Jesus say to them? Jesus really blows their, bursts their bubble. In John chapter 8, verse 44, actually, Jesus says to them, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. You see, folks, what does coming to church do for you? What does coming to church do for you? What does singing the hymns reading the Bible, listening to the sermon, joining in with the prayers, placing your money in the offering bag week after week after week. Does all of that, does all of that give you confidence? Does all of that give you confidence that you are a child of God? Folks, if your confidence is based on doing those things, however good those things are, you have a false confidence. It's an old saying, but I love it. Keith Green, the singer, said, dead now, of course, gone to glory. But this is what Keith Green says, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Salvation, folks, is not a reward, it is a gift. As the Reformation taught us, you can't buy your salvation. You cannot earn your salvation. God doesn't save us because our attendance at church is 95%. He doesn't save us because we sing well. Good thing. (laughs) He doesn't save us because we stay awake during the sermon. He doesn't save us because we give him a tenth of everything that we earn. God's salvation is a gift. That's why it's called grace. It is free. It is available to all who are prepared to repent and give their hearts to him. Folks, don't leave here this morning with a false confidence, a false security that says by coming here and by doing things here, I am a child of God. We're almost done. You know, in all the things that the Pharisees did, all their religious rituals, their ceremonial washings, their observance of the law, in all they did, they left out the most important thing. They left out the most important command of all, They'd let go of it and they had set it aside. They'd stopped loving God. In all of this, they had stopped loving God. They'd made everything so complicated, yet the law centered around a command that is so beautifully simple. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 15 as he explains to the Pharisees in verse 8 using a prophecy from 
Isaiah. You say, just kind of paraphrasing it, Jesus says, you say you love me. You say you love me with your lips, but I see no love in your hearts. Goes on in verse 9, your worship then to me is completely meaningless and completely pointless. See, folks, if there is no love for God in our hearts as we worship, our worship is empty and our worship is meaningless. Jesus shows us just how loveless the Pharisees had become. By by referring to this example, we see in Mark's Gospel, referred to as as, as the law of Corban, what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 15, verse 5 and 6, is what the Pharisees had done, is create this massive loophole. They had devised this law that had enabled them, in short, to avoid the responsibilities that they had for their elderly parents. In short, these men claimed to love God, but they had no love in their hearts for their parents. You see, part of loving God is, of course, loving and caring for others. You cannot love God and not love your neighbor. That's the whole point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. See, folks, I'm not suggesting that there is anyone here who has reached that loveless state that the Pharisees had reached. But what I will suggest this morning is perhaps there are some here today who, like the members of the church in Ephesus that we read about in Revelation chapter 2, there may be some here this morning who have lost their first love. Perhaps something has come into our lives to nullify God's word. We've replaced God's command to love him with something else. You know, there can be occasions in the life of a Christian when the things that we do can become a ritual, can't they? We do them because that's what Christians do. And I know because I've been there, certainly. And it all becomes very empty. And the power of God's word in our lives just seemed to have gone. Does it all seem this morning to be a bit empty? Does all this seem like an empty ritual? Perhaps it does for you this morning. Folks, if it's all a bit empty this morning, then we need to learn, don't we, to fall in love with Jesus all over again. How do we do that? Well, Paul reminds the church in Rome how to do that. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. In view of God's mercies, or as the New Living Translation says, because of all that Jesus has done for you, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to him. You know, for the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, Paul tells us just what Jesus has done for us just how much he's loved us, just how much he's given us, just how much he's brought us into. And then in chapter 12, he begins, in view of all of that, in view of everything that Jesus has done for you, offer your bodies in love as a living sacrifice for him. Folks, do we need to fall in love with Jesus all over again? Then you know what we need to do? We need to remind ourselves. It's not rocket science. We need to remind ourselves every day of all that he has done for you and for me. Do we want to see the power of God's word working in our lives? I trust you do. Well, it starts with this. The one thing that the Pharisees had left out, the one thing that their traditions had obscured and hidden, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul 
and with all your strength. See, folks, whatever we do as a church and whatever we do as individuals, first and foremost, let's love God and let's love each other. That's the kind of church and that's the kind of people that God will always be able to use, a people with his power and a people with his authority to be genuine participators in the work of the gospel. We're going to sing our final hymn together.